It is one of the most obvious facts of life that water is essential to humanity. Throughout history, water was nowhere near the simple commodity that it is now. In fact, clean, drinkable water is still not accessible in many places across the world. Yet in the United States, you just turn on the faucet and bam, there it is, to effortlessly drink, wash our hands, take a shower, cook, or water plants. But have you ever wondered where the water comes from or what price was paid to have it in the first place? Well, compared to other cities in the US, New York is often said to have the best water in the country in terms of cleanliness, pH level, and taste. In fact, the New York tap is often a symbol of pride among New Yorkers. And well, some do call into question whether or not New York City's water is actually the best in America. It is inarguably better than most metropolitan areas, which itself is a huge achievement when considering the sheer amount of people who live in and use the water on a daily basis. About 2.8 million this year in 2022. But this high quantity of water is not easy to come by. The New Yorkers only have this luxury due to a complex and intricate water supply system that pulls water in from the surrounding upstate areas. Run by the New York City Board of Water Supply, the entire system involves three massive aqueducts, three main tunnels, three controlled lakes, over 20 reservoirs, and various other structures such as smaller aqueducts, waterways, and treatment plants. As a result, the city consumes an astounding 1 billion gallons of water per day. And funny enough, some of the system actually made it into pop culture when they were heavily featured in the 1995 film Die Hard with a Vengeance. Anyhow, it was an obvious marvel of engineering achievement, but unbeknownst to most, the six major reservoirs that were created in the 20th century came at a heavy price, as the land was already inhabited by numerous farm towns. Yet, the need for water in New York City seemed to outweigh the opinions of the few small communities, so the towns were relocated. And from that time, the land that people once called home is completely underwater, at the bottom of each of these reservoirs. Today, we will discover what remains of these flooded towns and how exactly the area transformed into a vast body of water. This is the story of the towns lost under New York reservoirs. I'm your host, Ryan Sokash, and you're watching It's History. New York City is one of the largest cities in the world and has been for nearly 200 years. An understandable obstacle when you have such a large community of people is that you have to find a way to provide clean water for basic needs such as drinking, cooking, washing, and then later on sewage. Technology advanced past water wells, making them obsolete, and New York City's population nearly tripled in size to about 312,000 in the 1840s. So the Croton Aqueduct was built in 1842. Prior to the Croton Aqueduct, New Yorkers had to rely on water pumps and wells along with various natural springs. But this proved to be largely inefficient. The population grew and the wells were overpumped. Then, the close proximity of human waste to these wells ultimately resulted in outbreaks of yellow fever and cholera. The latter was particularly devastating as in 1832, 
it killed over 3,500 people, 2% of the population at the time. A limited amount of water also meant low water pressure, which quickly became a fire hazard as it was extremely hard to fight fires, particularly on tall buildings. Given that most New York buildings were made of wood, fires were often a grave danger and lack of pressure and the inadequate water supply in general led to several disasters, such as the fire of December 1835, which burned down 674 buildings in Manhattan. But now with the new Croton Aqueduct built of stone, brick, and cement, fresh and clean water could be directed towards the city, and these issues were largely solved. The system worked fine for several decades until New York's population continued to grow, and despite being upgraded in 1890, the output was not sufficient enough to provide for the now 3.4 million New Yorkers by the turn of the century. Shortly after, Chapter 724 of the Laws of 1905 were passed. This allowed for land in the Catskill Mountain area to be acquired by the city and used to build water supply structures, such such as dams, reservoirs, and aqueducts. With the creation of the New York City Board of Water Supply, or BWS, the first project plan was the Catskill Aqueduct, which would connect New York City to the untapped fresh water of the Catskill Mountains. Construction began on the aqueduct in 1907, and by 1924 it was completely finished. However, in order for the aqueduct to function, a series of reservoirs and accompanying dams had to be built. With the power of eminent domain, this was no problem for the BWS, and they began chartering plans for huge projects in the region. While New Yorkers were delighted with the prospect of more easily accessible fresh and clean water, it was a different story for those who actually lived in the Catskills. Throughout the mountains and the surrounding areas existed a plethora of small farming towns and villages that rested on the land needed for the new water supply structures. Beginning congruently with the construction of the Catskill Aqueduct up until the late 1960s, six massive reservoirs were built, the Neversink, Schoharie, Papacton, Cannonsville, Roundout, and Ashikan Reservoirs, each of them requiring communities to be flooded or relocated. The creation of these reservoirs is a large part of the age-old philosophical debate between urban and rural needs, and which ones matter more. Of course, those who lived in New York City would say that it was necessary to build these new water systems in order to provide clean drinking water to the city, a basic necessity. They would also say it purposed to prevent a resurgence in deadly outbreaks of diseases and sprawling fires both of which would affect the entire city as a whole. But then, on the other hand, the residents who lived in each of the small communities in the Catskills would say that they deserved to live on their own land and maintain their neighborhoods without outsiders coming in to destroy them. And while the debate over whose side is correct, if there is one, can continue on, it was ultimately the city dwellers with the vast resources of money and power who won out over the rural inhabitants. As it stands currently, the Catskill Aqueduct provides about 40% of New York City's water, but the price was 25 communities that were either relocated or completely erased from the map, and about 5,500 people having to leave their homes. 
The first reservoir built in the Catskill Mountain area was the Ashikan Reservoir. In the county of Ulster, there was a creek called the Esopus, which was central to the area. In order to build the reservoir here, the Esopus Creek was backed up by a newly built dam called the Olive Bridge. However, the space which was going to be flooded with water due to the creek being backed up by the dam was inhabited by about 2,000 residents all of whom had to be evacuated over the next few years when construction started in 1907. When it was announced that the first reservoir would be connected to the Catskill Aqueduct, which was also being built at the same time, New Yorkers were ecstatic. On the other hand, the residents of Bishop Falls and 11 nearby communities were devastated, knowing that their homes would soon be destroyed. In the next few years, it was particularly hard on many villagers, some of whom were even hired to help with the demolition process. In fact, some of the villagers had to demolish their own homes. The elderly citizens of these small communities were mostly saddened as they had lived their whole lives here and within the next few years, the homes where they grew up and watched their own children grow would soon no longer exist. Even though the citizens were paid handsomely, it was a hard transition as they moved elsewhere. The majority of the villagers were farmers, but as they moved to homes in nearby districts, all of the valuable farmland would soon go underwater. Tourism was the second biggest industry in these lost towns as there were few small yet beautiful waterfalls by the creek, but now these two were also destined for erasure. By August 1913, the villages were completely evacuated and all the buildings were torn down, with only cellar holes, foundations, and some stone walls still standing. Then, four years later, it all went underwater. The area that would become the west basin of the Ashikan Reservoir once hosted 504 houses, 9 blacksmith shops, 35 stores, 10 churches, 10 schools, and 7 sandmills. Unfortunately, most of the history of these towns has been forgotten were lost with the wind of time, with many of the documents and records buried deep in undiscovered archives. But with the information we do have, it's safe to say that these were the type of towns that really illustrate just how different life was back then, far removed from the global, interconnected, and hyper-individualistic life of modern New York. The people in these towns all knew each other by name, they grew their own food and even sewed their own clothing. While the majority of the relocated residents had an understandably bitter attitude towards the reservoir, the neighboring communities have become to view it differently as new generations were born. Today, the Ashikan Reservoir stands as a marker of human achievement as it's an engineering wonder. Not only do many behold its natural beauty, but it is also a source of food and recreation due to fishing. But what remains beneath it? Well, during a 2002 drought, the water had receded so far that some citizens claimed to be able to see the roofs of several churches and barns emerging from the water for the first time since the town's flooding nearly 90 years ago. Although this might very well be folklore. 
The next reservoir built by the BWS was the Schoharie Reservoir, which was started in 1909 and finished in 1927. The unfortunate victim of urban expansion was the small town of Gilboa, home to 350 residents. Gilboa was a humble town, started in the 1840s as a cotton mill community. However, due to several natural disasters such as floods, the town was never able to grow beyond its modest population and industries. Then in 1917, the BWS built the Gilboa Dam, which was intended to connect the future reservoir, and the townspeople soon began to leave quickly. When the reservoir was completed and water levels rose, some of the town remained above, which was different than the other towns submerged by New York's other reservoirs. In fact, some of the farms, roads, and buildings weren't fully torn down, and they laid dormant as the rest of the town went under. However, nature would eventually take its toll and nowadays these structures are buried under deep forest and brush. Unfortunately, most of the memories of Gilboa died along with its last residents, and not much is known about the town itself. But where Gilboa once stood, the Schoharie Reservoir reigns supreme, with a shoreline length of nearly 15 miles and a maximum depth of 120 feet. The reservoir is home to many species of fish, such as various types of trout. A corresponding tunnel called the Schoharie Tunnel was also built, ultimately connecting it to the Ashikan Reservoir. Then, a complex network of tunnels beneath the Catskill Mountains and the Hudson River feeds into the Catskill Aqueduct where the water flows into New York City. Immediately after building these two reservoirs, they wanted to expand even larger by tapping into the great resource that is the Delaware River. Once the New York legislature approved this venture, the BWS planned to construct a further five reservoirs. However, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, two other states that share the Delaware, were not so keen on giving up their water. Ultimately, the legal battle went all the way to the Supreme Court, where a 1931 case ruled that New York was allowed to utilize 400 million gallons from the Delaware, but they could only build three reservoirs for it. The first of the trio was the six-mile-long Roundout Reservoir, which was to be located between Ulster and Sullivan County. Starting in 1937, construction did not finish until 1954 because of a brief pause due to the Second World War. For this reservoir, three towns had to be removed. So all three of these towns were officially condemned by the state and now sit at the bottom of the reservoir. But before the towns and their buildings were torn down, all of the surrounding vegetation including a large number of trees as well as shrubs, bushes, and other various types of brush also had to be removed. In order to complete the process, the local laborers had to cut down, uproot, or burn all vegetation. Unlike the previous two reservoirs, the Ronau connects to the Delaware Aqueduct which was built at the same time and was finished in 1945. Laying 85 miles long, this aqueduct is the longest tunnel in the world, and it is through this channel that water from the Roundout Reservoir can reach New York. Nowadays, there is a driving tour that takes visitors on a trip to explore New York City's water supply system, and the Roundout Reservoir is one of the exhibits. People who take the tour can see the reservoir itself, as well as photos, videos, and testimonials of the people who used to live in the towns that now lie underwater. But as I mentioned before, even the shrubs here were removed, so probably nothing remains. 
Only a few years after the Ranau Reservoir began construction, the BWS started working on the next reservoir called the Never Sink in Sullivan County. Ironically, this reservoir was named after the town Never Sink, one of the towns that eventually would be sunk to make way for New York City's thirst. In 1941, the BWS ruled that the two towns of Neversink and Bittersweet had to be removed in order to build this new reservoir. From an outside point of view, these towns were very small, with only 1,500 to 2,000 residents in between both of them. Well, an old and historic town that was founded in 1798, Neversink, was so tiny that the schoolhouse only had two rooms, for example. But the citizens of these settlements were very angry that they had to move themselves, their houses, and their businesses elsewhere. But eventually, on June the 4th, 1953, the Neversink Reservoir was created when the construction workers flooded the two towns after making sure no citizen was left. The town of Neversink was actually completely relocated further down the street, right next to where the reservoir stands today. Since the town, its people, and its name were simply moved a few miles, most of the current citizens who live there have no idea that the original version of their town is deep underwater. Though just like with the Ashikan, some claim to be able to see the remnants of buildings when the water level is low, especially during the autumn season. Again, although it is a fun and mysterious thought, it's most certainly folklore. The last of the three reservoirs commissioned after the 1931 Supreme Court case was the Papacton Reservoir. This reservoir is truly colossal, holding up to 140 billion gallons of water, making it not only the largest of the trio, but also the largest system of any reservoir in New York water supply. From the time it was finished in 1955 to current day, the Papacton Reservoir alone provides 25% of New York City's drinking water by sending water into the Roundout Reservoir before moving into the Delaware Aqueduct. In order to build this massive reservoir, four towns, Arena, Papacton, Shavertown, and Union Grave were scheduled to be submerged along with parts of the Delaware and Northern Railroads, meaning 974 people would have to find homes elsewhere. Just like Neversink, this reservoir was named after one of the towns it submerged. In this case, the small town of Papacton. During the moving process, some citizens took to creative ways of relocation. For example, it was reported that some families who loved their homes uprooted their physical houses loaded them onto the backs of trucks or steamships to be sent to their new town of residence. At the time, people claimed to see entire houses being driven down the road or sailed down the river. Much like the towns removed to build Ashikan, records showed that this collection of towns maintained a quiet culture where the majority of people all knew one another on a first-name basis, the complete opposite of New York City. To convince these communities to leave, the city had to compensate them for their troubles. Some citizens gladly took the money and left, whereas some were unsettled about having to leave but were content with the compensation. Others were not as easily moved and they organized speeches and gathered to speak out against the removal process of their town. But ultimately, their protest fell on deaf ears and the construction went underway. As the years went by and the reservoir was being pieced together bit by bit, 
the townsfolk went about their daily lives, knowing that soon their towns would be completely gone. And by late 1953, the residents knew their days were numbered. So the town of Shavertown held a gigantic Christmas and New Year's celebration knowing very well it would be their last. Later, in the next few months, auctions were held in some of the stores where virtually everything was sold to the fleeing residents. Then, by 1955, the four towns were completely underwater. Even after the immense Papacton Reservoir was completed, New York City's need for water continued to increase and the BWS planned to build yet another reservoir. After another series of legal battles which saw New York win another Supreme Court case, construction of the Cannonsville Reservoir began in 1955. The idea behind this structure was to utilize the western branch of the Delaware River and by the time it was finished in 1967, it could hold up to 95 billion gallons of water. This reservoir plays a vital role in the complex array of water systems that reach New York City. Five towns had to be removed to make space. Beerston, Rock Rift, Rock Royal, Granton, and Cannonsville, which the reservoir was named after. The town of Cannonsville in particular was totally wiped out in order to build the reservoir, as reports claimed that bulldozers took down every single tree, building, house, barn, church, school, or stone wall, leaving absolutely nothing standing. Even the man who founded the town in 1790 had his body removed as the cemeteries were excavated, and shortly after, the entire town, along with the neighboring communities, were flooded with water and now lay submerged. Going back to the debate, trying to juggle the needs of both city dwellers and rural townsfolk, both sides have viewpoints that any empathetic person can relate to. Together, the Catskill and Delaware Aqueduct, along with its six reservoirs, provide 90% of New York City's drinking water. The availability of clean water for all New Yorkers is an achievement that should not be overlooked. Furthermore, there have been no more comparable outbreaks of yellow fever or cholera due to the contaminated water. The construction of these reservoirs also led to job opportunities for thousands of people who had been struggling for work, such as African Americans who recently moved from the South or Italian immigrants. On the other hand, the reservoir connected to the Catskill Aqueduct saw the removal of 12 towns, forcing 2,000 people to leave their homes. While eight of the towns were able to relocate elsewhere, the other four simply do not exist any longer. From all six reservoirs, about 25 communities were destroyed, forcing the displacement of 5,500 people. And with them went many of the industries they worked for, such as logging, bluestone quarrying, and farming. Another consequence of the reservoir was the eradication of each town's cemeteries, with over 32 cemeteries and thousands of bodies needing to be excavated. The city offered anywhere from $15 to $65 to residents who dug up their own relatives and reburied them elsewhere. This wasn't just done out of respect, but also for practical reasons, as the cemeteries served as contamination hazards if left underwater. So in total, there are valid arguments from both sides of the story, but at the end of the day, it's the New Yorkers who now have fresh and clean water, while the residents of the small towns like Neversink or Cannonsville had to leave and find homes elsewhere. And yet, the large majority of the 8 million New Yorkers who take a drink of water every day, they have no idea that that luxury 
came at the price of the condemnation and ultimate demolition of many towns. That's it for today, guys. Subscribe for new videos every Thursday and Saturday, and don't miss our New York City history playlist. This is Ryan Sokash, signing off.